This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. Believe it or not, I am Mike Figueredo, even though I did shave off the beard. But the show must go on regardless, even if I do look like a child. This is the 79th episode of the program, and today is January 27th, and we've got a great show ahead for you. But before we get started, I want to thank these individuals for joining the Independent Progressive Media Revolution. So today I want to send a huge thank you to Tiffany Namwong, Nathan Guilds, Tony Moyer, Victoria Minetta, Thomas Zico, and Thomas Brufak. So all of these individuals decided to support the show either by donating to us via PayPal, signing up to be Patreon patrons, or becoming a member on HumanistReport.com. So if you'd also like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you could visit the links down below in the description box, or you could simply support the show by liking our videos, sharing our videos, and spreading the word about the podcast, or by disabling ad block on this channel. But I mean, as long as you watch... That's all I could ever hope or ask for. So coming up on today's episode, I'll tell you all about Donald Trump's executive orders, which ones are bad and which ones are good. I'll also talk about how Donald Trump's FCC chairman wants to kill net neutrality and why we are going to stop him. I'll discuss who will be paying for Trump's border wall and his disgusting position on torture the response to Trump's executive order that revives the Dakota Access Pipeline from Bernie Sanders and Standing Rock, and how progressives plan to take over the Democratic Party with Justice Democrats. I'll also talk about the DNC Forum and how DNC chair candidate Tom Perez ran away from a reporter when he was confronted about his controversial stance on Israel. I'll also discuss why Bernie Sanders is the true leader of the resistance to Donald Trump, Tulsi Gabbard and how she sets the record straight on Syria, and why it seems like Democrats are already starting to cave to Donald Trump. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. Donald Trump has been the president now for just a week, and he's already proving that he is a complete disaster. And I say he's a disaster for a number of reasons, and this is because he signed some really harmful executive orders that damage not just the American people in a number of ways, but it also harms the planet. So we'll talk about the most harmful executive orders that I think he signed, but before I get to that, we're going to start this discussion on a more positive note and commend Trump for one good thing that he did do for America. He did kill the TPP. So he signed an executive order that states that the United States is hereby withdrawing from any negotiations of the TPP. Now, this effectively kills the Trans-Pacific Partnership permanently. However, I am skeptical that Donald Trump would revive the TPP, change a couple of provisions, and then say that he reformed it and now it's beneficial to the American worker and then pass it because he has a history as a businessman of capitalizing on these trade deals that do ship our jobs overseas. So I don't know if I can trust them, but for now, let's all breathe a sigh of relief knowing that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is dead. However, any favor that Donald Trump cultivated in killing the TPP, he immediately destroyed with really devastating executive orders that are just, quite frankly, a disaster. So first of all, he signed an executive order that not only permits the construction of the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines, 
but his order calls for them to be constructed in an expedited manner, presumably because he knows that the public will be against it. So he's trying to push the construction of these pipelines through immediately because he knows that public outrage will be swift and severe. So he's basically given these companies, like the Energy Transfer Partner Company, who's building the Dakota Access Pipeline, he's giving them the right of way so that way they can build this pipeline on federal lands. So these pipelines threaten the drinking water of millions of residents, somewhere between 17 and 18 million. It also violates the territorial sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And these pipes, they break all the time. It's not a matter of if they break, but when they're going to break. Now also, he signed an executive order that freezes federal hiring with the exception of military personnel and critical public safety positions. Now, this hurts one group of people that he actually pledged to protect veterans, because this actually prohibits the VA from hiring staff members to care for veterans that come back from war who are wounded, so they can no longer hire doctors or nurses, and one-third of those employed by the Veterans Administration were veterans. So this actually reduces the job prospects for many veterans. Also, he signed an executive order instructing his administration to start the repeal process of the Affordable Care Act, and, quote, has allowed all agency heads to waive requirements of the Affordable Care Act to the maximum extent permitted by law. This is according to PBS. Additionally, any regulations initiated unilaterally by President Obama that were in the process of being implemented have been frozen until Donald Trump's administration reviews them. So anything good that Obama tried to get through, Trump may stop them. Now, when it comes to the issue of abortion, he's prohibiting federal dollars from going to international organizations that provide abortions or information about abortion. So this is kind of the international gag rule. And this was to be expected because anytime a Republican president takes office, one of the first things that they try to do to appease their base is roll back abortion and uh, try to impose more restrictions on it. So this is not surprising, but that doesn't make it any less problematic. Also, he signed an executive order that moves us one step closer to the border wall. So his executive order directs agencies to begin planning and identify funding for the project, including sending requests to Congress. It also directs agencies to construct or contract out for more detention facilities at or near the Mexican border. This order also directs the hiring of an additional five 5,000 Border Patrol agents subject to funding, and it requires all agencies identify any U.S. aid funds that have gone to Mexico in the past five years. Additionally, the president has directed agencies to step up deportation of those in the country illegally. First, he prioritizes seven groups of people for deportation. It is anyone convicted of a crime, charged with a crime, who has committed a chargeable offense, has misrepresented themselves to the government, has abused a welfare program, who is under deportation order, and who may, in the judgment of an immigration officer, otherwise pose a risk to public safety or national security. Second, the order also directs the hiring of 10,000 more immigration and customs enforcement agents, though it states that is subject to funding. Third, it states the U.S. policy is now to allow local law enforcement officers to act as immigration officers whenever possible. Fourth, it orders the Attorney General and Secretary of Homeland Security to block federal grants from so-called sanctuary cities, which do not enforce immigration laws. So, this indicates to us that even though we often call President Obama the deporter-in-chief, Donald Trump is going to out-deport President Obama. Now, when it comes to deporting people who commit crimes or who violate our welfare system, which the 
the number is very small, we're already doing that. So again, like I said, this is redundant. Now, second, he's taking really Orwellian steps to control the flow of information. So according to The Hill, President Trump has banned employees of the Environmental Protection Agency from giving social media updates and speaking with reporters, according to the Associated Press. The EPA ban comes amid other reports of agency staff being restricted from interacting with the members of the Congress or the general public. And additionally, business insider reports that all new grants to the EPA to fund its own science have been frozen. However, it's unknown how long this freeze will last and whether or not it applies to active contracts. Now, finally, he's expected to sign an executive order that delays the resettlement of all refugees from entering the country for four months, and he also will be prohibiting Syrian refugees from entering the country. And as far as we know, this will be an indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. And Donald Trump and conservatives love to perpetuate the lie that the U.S. doesn't vet refugees. That's false. The Huffington Post reports, refugees recommended by the U.N. Refugee Agency for resettlement in the United States undergo a stringent two-year-long vetting process that includes various security and medical clearances, as well as cultural orientation. If the U.S. government stops processing or admitting people for even a week, their exit visa expires or their medical expires, they have to go back and start all over. And the process is so synchronized that any stick in the wheel sort of throws it off pretty badly. So when I hear this, I think we're not a compassionate society. Bernie Sanders was right when he said we're not a compassionate society. Not only do we deny our own citizens the right to healthcare, we are no longer subsidizing education like we used to, hence why college tuition prices are skyrocketing. And now the people who are the most disadvantaged in the world, Syrian refugees, we're telling them they're not allowed to enter our country. We're not a compassionate society. So all of these policies that Donald Trump is trying to implement are incredibly harmful. They're not progressive. They're regressive. And I will be fighting Donald Trump on everything. But the first step to fighting Donald Trump is shining a spotlight on what he's doing and holding him accountable. So we're really going to have to fight like hell to protect any progress we made. And, you know, it sucks. So at this point, I think it's safe to say that everyone and their dog knows what President Trump repeatedly promised throughout the course of his campaign. It was one of his biggest campaign promises. Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico. Who? Mexico. Who? Mexico. Who? Mexico. Who? Mexico. Wrong. So now Donald Trump isn't so sure that Mexico is going to pay for the wall after all. Will American taxpayers pay for the wall? Uh, ultimately, it'll come out of what's happening with Mexico. We're going to be starting those negotiations relatively soon, and we will be in a form reimbursed by Mexico, which so I've always So they'll pay said. us back? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yes. So the American taxpayer will pay for the wall at first? Uh, all it is is we'll be reimbursed at a later date from whatever transaction we make from Mexico. Mexico's president said in recent days that Mexico absolutely will not pay, adding that it goes against our dignity as a country and our dignity as Mexicans. He says well, quite simply they're has, not paying. David, I think he has to say that. He has to say that. But I'm just telling you there will be a payment. It will be in a form, perhaps a complicated form. And you have to understand, what I'm doing is good for the United States. It's also going to be good for Mexico. We want to have a very stable, very solid Mexico. When does construction begin? As soon as we can. As soon as we can physically do it. We're, uh, Within from, months? 
Uh, I would say in months, yeah. I would say in months. Certainly planning is starting immediately. So if you don't notice there, he's changing his tune a little bit. He's saying, well, you know, we're going to pay for the wall, but now Mexico is going to pay us back at a later date. And even Paul Ryan is saying, yeah, we're going to pay for the wall. Who's going to pay for it? Well, first off, we're going to pay for it and front the money up. But I do think that there are various ways of, as you know, I know your follow-up question is, is Mexico going to pay for the wall? There are a lot of different ways of getting um, um, Mexico to, to contribute to doing this. And there are different ways of defining how exactly they pay for it. There are, quote, many different ways that you can get Mexico to pay for the wall. Now, this is how they're going to get Mexico to pay for the wall specifically. Oh, that's right, I forgot. They don't have any method of actually compelling a sovereign country like Mexico to pay for a policy that they want. So, you're gonna pay for it. Now, since the taxpayers are going to be paying for it, I know that since I'm going to be paying for this wall, I want to know how much it's going to cost. Now, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell talked about this. As the speaker pointed out to our group yesterday, with um, what? The border supplemental. Yeah, of yeah. A roughly... Uh, 12 to 15. Yeah, 12 to 15 billion dollars. 12 to 15. Yeah, 12 to 15 billion dollars. Are you fucking kidding me? It's going to cost 12 to 15 billion dollars. Excuse me? Can you speak up? Yeah, 12 to 15 billion dollars. 12 to 15 billion with a B, that's a metric fuck ton of money, right? So at least we can take comfort knowing that this wall will be effective and it's going to prevent the millions of undocumented immigrants from flooding in to the country, right? Uh, actually, that's incorrect too. So according to Pew Research Center, net immigration from Mexico is below zero since the Great Recession. And from 2009 to 2014, 1 million Mexicans and their families have returned home to Mexico and took their U.S.-born children with them. The conventional wisdom is that this is a good thing because these undocumented immigrants, they come over, they take our jobs, and they lower wages for everyone. But that's also not true. Forbes reports, according to an April 2015 symposium, on the effects of illegal immigrants in the Southern Economic Journal, illegal immigrants actually raise wages for documented workers. And additionally, undocumented Mexican immigrants pay billions in taxes every year. So they're putting more into our system than they're taking out because they're not eligible to receive federal tax subsidies when it comes to health care and when it comes to welfare. But overall, to the average Trump supporter, they contend that none of these statistics matter because the bottom line is that these immigrants, they come over and they commit crime. Wrong. That is absolutely Wrong. proved over and over again. Wrong. Actually According to a study conducted by the Cato Institute, both the census data-driven studies and macro-level studies find that immigrants are less crime-prone than natives with some small potential exceptions. There are numerous reasons why immigrant criminality is lower than native criminality. One explanation is that immigrants who commit crimes can be deported and thus are punished more for criminal behavior, making them less likely to break the law. Another explanation is that immigrants self-select for those willing to work rather than those willing to commit crimes. Crimes. According to this healthy immigrant thesis, motivated and ambitious foreigners are more likely to immigrate and those folks are less likely to be criminals. This could explain why immigrants are less likely to engage in antisocial behaviors than natives despite having lower incomes. So I don't mean to burst your bubble here, but this wall is unnecessary. And furthermore, not everyone who does come over here illegally 
crosses the border illegally. People actually enter the country legally, and then they simply overstay their visas. That's how 40% of people actually become undocumented immigrants in the United States. So the question is, if net immigration is less than zero, and the immigrants that are here pay taxes, don't commit crime, and ultimately raise our wages and contribute to society in an actually meaningful way, then why should taxpayers have to pay for a wall that will cost 12 to $15 billion? So I'm sorry if I'm not okay with the fact that the American taxpayer is going to be forced to pay 12 to $15 billion for this stupid, unnecessary wall when Flint still has lead in their drinking water. Their water is literally contaminated and is undrinkable. And furthermore, why should we have to pay for a wall that will make Trump and his supporters feel better when 10.4% of Americans still can't afford health care? When the cost of college tuition has increased by 1,120% over 30 years, when there are more than 500,000 homeless people in the country, why are we forced to pay 12 to $15 billion for a wall that will literally do nothing? It's completely unreasonable. And if you're arguing that we need a wall when net immigration from Mexico is zero, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And of course, the Mexican government has stated that they're not going to pay for the wall. We told you so, and now that burden is going to go to us. We're going to pay 12 to 15 billion for something that is completely and utterly unnecessary. That sounds kind of dumb, 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 dumb. So in a recent interview with ABC News, President Trump gave us some insight as to what he thinks about torture. Uh, and he confirmed what we suspected, that he is a morally bankrupt tyrant who wants U.S. policy on torture to be comparable to that of ISIS. Take a look. Mr. President, you told me during one of the debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I your would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. What does that when mean? When they're shooting, when they're chopping off the heads of our people and other people, when they're chopping off the heads of people because they happen to be a Christian in the Middle East, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? As far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. Now, with that being said, I'm going with General Mattis. I'm going with my secretary because I think Pompeo is going to be phenomenal. I'm going to go with what they say. But I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes, absolutely. You're now the president. Do you want waterboarding? I don't want people to chop off the citizens or anybody's heads in the Middle East, okay? Because they're Christian or Muslim or anything else. I don't want, look, now they chop them off and they put them on camera and they send them all over the world. So we have that and we're not allowed to do anything. We're not playing on an even field. I will say this, I will rely on Pompeo and Mattis and my group. And if they don't want to do, that's fine. If they do want to do, then I will work toward that end. I want to do everything within the bounds of what you're allowed to do legally. But do I feel it works? Absolutely, I feel it works. You just watched a sitting president advocate for torture publicly. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't call it enhanced interrogation. He just straight up advocated for torture. That made me feel queasy. This is a new low for America. And he states, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? 
Well, as far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. No. We're a civilized society, Trump. And civilized societies don't torture people. We don't torture people. This goes against the Constitution. This goes against U.S. laws. This go goes against international laws. And this goes against who we are as a country. And it's contradictory that you claim that you're against medieval barbarism that you see with ISIS because if you're against that, then why would you want to stoop to their level and do what they're doing? You talk about how they torture and behead people. Why would you, quote, fight fire with fire and do exactly what they're doing? Doesn't that make you a barbarian just like them? Doesn't that make you comparable to ISIS? And he claims that he spoke with high-level intelligence officials who claim that torture works. He said, uh, I do feel it works. Absolutely. Oh, uh, well, that's nice that you feel it works, but when you actually look at the data, when you look at the studies from actual scientists who studied it and looked at torture, uh, it doesn't work. So Newsweek explains compelling scientific evidence is emerging that torture and coercion are at best ineffective means of gathering intelligence. Worse, as Shane O'Mara, a professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College Dublin, wrote in a recent book, Why Torture Doesn't Work, the Neuroscience of Interrogation, torture can produce false information by harming those areas of the brain associated with memory. O'Mara marshals a large amount of scientific literature to make this point. In one important experiment from 2006, psychiatrist Charles Morgan and colleagues subjected a group of special operations soldiers to prisoner of war conditions, including food and sleep deprivation and temperature extremes. These soldiers were highly trained and physically fit, and unlike most detainees, they were motivated to cooperate, but even they exhibited a remarkable deterioration in memory as a result of these stressful conditions. According to Carl, enhanced interrogation techniques have similar effects. It is obvious that sleep deprivation and temperature extremes disorient the detainee. They are designed to do so, he says. So when you put someone through trauma, how are you expecting to actually get meaningful information out of them? You can't. Now, furthermore, even if we can prove that it does in fact work, that doesn't change the fact that torture is illegal. So according to the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the government cannot subject individuals to cruel and unusual punishment. Furthermore, government officials that are found guilty of torturing people are in violation of U.S. criminal codes and can be imprisoned for up to 20 years. And under Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, torture is considered a grave breach to international humanitarian law, and it's also considered a crime against humanity under international criminal laws. So keeping that in mind, Donald Trump said that he wants to permit torture to the extent that the law allows it. Well, the discussion is over. It's not allowed under the law. You can't do it. If you torture people, if you waterboard people, that is torture, then you are violating not just U.S. laws and the U.S. Constitution, but international laws. So, there's no such thing as permitting torture to the extent that the law allows it. It's not allowed. It is expressly prohibited in the Constitution that our founders codified that you claim to care about. And the fact that we're still talking about torture in 2017, it's really demoralizing. No matter how you slice it, there's no scientific, moral, or legal justifications that should excuse torture. It's wrong, and it's illegal, and we shouldn't do it because we're civilized beings. And part of me wants to blame Obama for this because when I voted for Obama, 
I fully expected him to prosecute George W. Bush for carrying out this horrendous war crime, but since Obama did not have the spine to prosecute George Bush, now future administrations, they're going to think it's okay. And Trump is going to torture because he knows the next spineless Democrat that takes office after him, well, they're not going to have the uh, desire to prosecute him because they're going to commit war crimes too. So, we, ha we have to stop somewhere. We have to take a stand and say enough is enough. Torture is not allowed. Now, thankfully, there are people who are speaking out against Donald Trump and his stance that is pro-torture. One of them is John McCain, and I'm against John McCain in many ways, but I'm with him on this. Uh, John McCain says that he will try to stop Trump, and Bernie Sanders is someone else who's vowing to fight against Trump. So, Bernie Sanders, being the voice of reason, released this statement. He said, does Donald Trump really want to defy the Geneva Convention and international law and make torture an official policy of the United States government? Does Trump really want to lead this country into shame and barbarity and undermine the values that have made us great and a respected nation? Does Trump really want to ignore the advice of U.S. military leaders who vigorously oppose torture? Does Trump really want to tell our military adversaries that if America does it, they also have the right to torture captured American soldiers? Whatever Trump may or may not want, Congress and the American people must defend American values. No torture. It's wrong. It doesn't work. And it's illegal. We don't torture in the United States. Period. We don't torture. If we're a civilized nation, like we say we are, then we don't torture. President Trump has made Ajit Pai the new chairman of the FCC. Now, Ajit Pai is a Republican that served on the FCC for five years. And I'm talking about this individual because he poses a severe threat to the internet as we know it. Because Ajit Pai is someone who is vehemently against net neutrality. So to give you some background, in 2015, the FCC voted to reclassify broadband as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. Now, Ajit Pai was one of two commissioners, both Republican, of course, that voted against these new regulations that saved the internet. And he was outspoken about his opposition to it. Now, Politico declared him net neutrality's chief critic, and to illustrate why they're correct about this, he would literally take a copy of the new rules that were passed and paraded around to imply, look, this is a thick set of new regulations, it's a government overreach, we need to do away with it. So, in 2015, Politico wrote, since taking office, Pi has been a reliable economic conservative, railing against commission overreach and warning about government intrusion into the marketplace. Now, what's interesting about Ajit Pai is that, ostensibly, he cares about internet freedom, and he's states that these new rules pose a threat to internet freedom. So he said that the threat to the internet freedom has awakened a sleeping giant after these new rules were passed. And I am optimistic that we will look back on today's vote as an aberration, a temporary deviation from the bipartisan path that has served us so well. I don't know whether this plan will be vacated by a court, reversed by Congress, or overturned by a future commission, but I do believe that its days are numbered. And he's absolutely correct here. The days of these new regulations are in fact numbered. Now he said that he's against government overreach and all of these regulations because, quote, they strapped too many rules on internet service providers without providing real evidence that consumers were harmed without regulations. Yes, because when will someone start looking out for Comcast and Time Warner and Verizon? You know, the little guys. Nobody thinks about them. So what he's saying here is the opposite of what's true. So consumers were harmed 
by a lack of net neutrality because in 2014, Comcast started to throttle the internet speeds of Netflix. And when you tried to watch Netflix, all of a sudden, you kept seeing this buffering symbol on your screen that you never saw before. Well, it turns out Comcast was trying to kill off Netflix. And Comcast, because of their greed, they're responsible for catalyzing the FCC to take new steps towards uh, regulations. And they're the reason why we had to pass these new regulations in the first place. And these regulations, they're not a government overreach, and they're not against internet freedom. So to be against these new rules means you are against net neutrality, because what net neutrality does is it prevents these really large corporations like Comcast and Time Warner and Verizon from actually implementing these anti-consumer policies. So if you allow them to discriminate against certain websites that they don't like, they can kill off the competition, they can censor the flow of information. So if somebody talks badly about Comcast and their anti-consumer policies, well, without net neutrality, Comcast would be able to treat that web traffic for that website differently and strangle the traffic that goes to their website. But under these new rules, it says that all internet service providers must treat every single website equally. So Ajit Pai is using Orwellian doublespeak to pretend as though the current rules go against internet freedom. That's not true. The current rules are what cemented internet freedom. Now, Donald Trump made Ajit Pai the FCC chair because Trump viewed the new regulations proposed by Obama's FCC chairman as an attack on the internet and another top-down power grab and was worried that this would allow internet service providers to target conservative media. Now, Donald Trump showed here with this one tweet that he has no idea what net neutrality actually is because net neutrality does the opposite of what Trump is worried about. Trump doesn't understand that. Net neutrality prevents internet service providers from throttling traffic to certain websites. Again, net neutrality mandates that internet service providers treat all websites equally. Net neutrality. So if you kill net neutrality, then internet service providers could target conservative or liberal websites. And this is presumably what Ajit Pai wants. He wants internet service providers to be able to choose how websites are treated. So if a certain website like Ripoff Report talks about Comcast's anti-consumer policies, Comcast can say, well, it looks like we're going to reduce your bandwidth and effectively kill off your website. If a certain website talks badly about Republican politicians or Democratic politicians that Comcast donated to, well, they can simply shut down that website by making it so slow that nobody would want to visit it. Ajit Pai wants this because he came from the industry. Ajit Pai literally served as legal counsel to Verizon for a short period of time. So maybe it's the case that he's biased because he came from the industry. Maybe it's the case that he's a Republican and Republicans are just anti-consumer in general. But all we know is that Ajit Pai, in starting this new job, should make everyone worried because he's given us every indication in the past that behind that big smile and his Orwellian doublespeak is a sinister plan to give Comcast, Time Warner, and Verizon exactly what they want. So NPR writes, though the net neutrality rules after years in limbo have now been affirmed in court, Pai and his fellow Republican FCC commissioner, Michael Riley, have indicated plans to revisit those internet regulations as well as other FCC rules. In the months to come, we also need to remove outdated and unnecessary regulations, Pai said in a speech in December. The regulatory underbrush at the FCC is thick. We need to fire up the weed whacker and remove those rules 
that are holding back investment, innovation, and job creation. In statements, industry groups praised Pai for his integrity and forward-thinking leadership. Consumer advocacy groups decried him as a reactionary and pro-industry individual. While he doesn't always agree with our industry on every issue, he's both thoughtful and willing to listen, the Internet Association chief Michael Beckerman said. So make no mistake about it. The industry loves Ajit Pai because Ajit Pai is a shill for the industry. So he also claims here to be in favor of greater internet freedom, innovation, and job creation. Well, that's the opposite of what's going to happen if you kill net neutrality. Because if Comcast has its way, as I stated, they can kill Netflix. They can throttle their bandwidth and then propose an alternative to Netflix and then make Netflix close shop. And all those people that work at Netflix will lose their jobs, for example. And then also Comcast can then throttle the traffic to media organizations that speak out against their inevitable arbitrary actions. So you're allowing large corporations like Comcast and Time Warner to control competition and the flow of information and it's effectively corporate fascism. Let's just call it what it is. This is corporate fascism, and I'm not just being hyperbolic. Again, in 2014, Comcast showed us what they want to do. They want to cut off their competition. They want to slow down the internet to their competitors, and that's only the start. So Ajit Pai wants corporate fascism. Quote, he is going to re-examine the current rules, meaning... He's going to overturn net neutrality because he's spoken out against the new rules that created net neutrality and cemented net neutrality. So we don't have to wait until he proposes the new plan. We can already put pressure on Ajit Pai and we can already send him a very clear message. Either you protect net neutrality or you resign. Because, you see, there was someone named Tom Wheeler. He was Ajit Pai's predecessor, and this individual came directly from the industry. He was a lobbyist for Comcast, and he initially proposed new rules to kill net neutrality. And guess what happened? He succumbed to public pressure when the weight of the world rained down on him. People literally showed up to Tom Wheeler's house and protested. We sent him thousands and thousands of emails and phone calls, and he had no choice but to listen to the American people. And guess what? Ajit Pai will face that same level of resistance. So here's what we can do. First of all, we're going to tweet to him and demand that he defends net neutrality because gutting the current FCC regulations will lead to overwhelming grassroots resistance. Let him know about the level of resistance he will face if he tries to touch the internet. Next, we can send him an email at ajit.pi at FCC. Gov. Now also, you can call the FCC at 1-888-225-5322. I'm going to call them right now. I have no idea if this will go to voicemail, but I am going to leave them a message if not. And it doesn't even go to voicemail. Let's try that again. Thank you for calling the FCC's mm. Consumer Center. Our hours of operation are from 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This is good you information. Press 1. Gracias por llamar al Centro del Consumidor. Thank you for calling the FCC. Press 1 if you want to report a tower light outage or safety of light issue involving interference. Press 2 if your call concerns an application for a license 
were the auctioning of frequencies. Press 3 if you are a member of the news media. Press 4 if you'd like to file an informal complaint or have any questions. Press 9 to repeat these options. We'll go with 4. Thank you for calling the FCC. As well as notifications, your complaint was received and served on your service provider. Press 9 to repeat this information. Press 8 to return to the previous menu. Press 0 to speak with an agent. Please hold for the next available agent. For quality assurance, your call may be monitored and recorded. Thank you for calling the FCC Consumer Center. Our office is currently closed. If you would like to leave a message, please press 1. So 14201, that's the prompts that you're going to want to press. They clearly don't want to talk to us, but too bad. Okay, so they don't want me to leave a message. Um, So I'm going to try again later, and I would encourage you all to try again. We are going to bombard them with phone calls because clearly they want to make it so that way you can't leave a message because they know with the new chairman he is going to uh get bombarded with phone calls because he is a threat to the internet so just let me say this i'm gonna let this keep ringing um we can save the internet we don't have to wait to see what ajit pai does we already know that he's spoken out against net neutrality uh and we are not going to allow him to kill the internet so they're going to face grassroots resistance and it begins right now so if you go to humanistreport.com you can click on save the internet and you can find information about what you can do if you repeat steps one through three daily then I think that you can make a difference. And if enough people do it, you can send them a strong message that we will not stand for a corporate takeover of the internet. The internet is going to remain free and open or Ajit Pai and the FCC can face swift and severe grassroots resistance like anything they've ever experienced before. Uh, so let's go ahead and let this ring. Uh, keep calling because clearly the, you know, they, they don't want to direct us to their message system. And it just hung up. So yeah... That pisses me off. So let's just keep calling. Uh, blow up their phones. Do what you got to do. Because they are going to hear us. They may not want to hear us, but they're going to hear us. Save the internet. So as we all know by now, President Trump has signed two executive orders, both of which revive the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. And both orders mandate that these pipelines be constructed in a manner that's expedited. So he's giving giving these companies the right of way so that way they can hurry up and push these pipelines through before the public resistance becomes too overwhelming. Now, these are problematic One, because both of these pipelines threaten the environment, but he says that he signed them because they will create thousands of jobs. Well, that's not correct. When it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline, Republicans constantly talk about how thousands of jobs will be created. But what they don't tell you is that only 35 permanent jobs will be created, and those thousands of jobs... Those are just temporary, and when it comes to the Dakota Access Pipeline, this not only violates the territorial sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but it threatens the drinking water of 17 million people, including Standing Rock. So these orders 
are not acceptable, and we're still going to fight even though it seems as though we have no legal recourse and that we're backed into a corner. And someone who is definitely planning to fight and says he's going to do everything in his power to stop these pipelines is Bernie Sanders. He released a statement saying millions of people came together all over this country to stop the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines and say we must transform our energy system away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Today, President Trump ignored the voices of millions and put the short-term profits of the fossil fuel industry ahead of the future of our planet. At a time when the scientific community is virtually unanimous in telling us that climate change is caused by human activity and it is already causing devastating problems, we cannot afford to build new oil pipelines that lock us into burning fossil fuels for years to come. I will do everything I can to stop these pipelines and protect our planet for future generations. So let's be realistic here. The situation is grim. It looks grim and it looks as though we're going to lose and that these pipelines will in fact be constructed against the desires of grassroots activists against the sovereign right of Native Americans, like the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, to reject this from being built on their land, uh, and it's going to threaten the drinking water of millions of people, as I stated. And it's not just a matter of if these pipelines break, it's inevitable. It's a matter of when they're going to break, because these pipelines burst all the time. In fact, North Dakota had an oil spill not too long ago, and yet they're already going through with another pipeline. I want to add one more thing to what Bernie Sanders said here. This is more than Donald Trump just ignoring the American people and the millions of people who want us to move towards renewable energy. This is about a conflict of interest. This is about corruption. So CBS News explains Donald Trump holds stock in the company building the disputed Dakota Access oil pipeline and pipeline opponents warn that Trump's investments could affect any decision he makes on the $3.8 billion project as president. Trump's 2016 federal disclosure forms show he owned between 15000 and 50000 in stock in Texas-based energy transfer partners. That's down from between 500,000 and 1 million a year earlier. Trump also owns between 100,000 and 250,000 in Phillips 66, which has one quarter share of Dakota Access. And he's also received thousands in campaign contributions from an executive at the Energy Transfer Partners Company. He will stand to profit personally in seeing these pipelines constructed. This is corruption. This is overt brazen corruption. Now, the media previously reported, incorrectly so, that he no longer has stock in it. But he does. That was incorrect, actually. Donald Trump has stock in the Dakota Access Pipeline. So his executive order on this is literally a legitimate act of corruption. And as a result, this executive order should be invalidated. And Donald Trump should be impeached for signing an executive order that benefits a company that he's invested in. As president, you can't push for policies that you personally profit from. That's not the way that democracy works, Donald Trump. What democracy is about is what the American people want, and the American people did not elect you to pass these pipelines. So I think that if Donald Trump does not rescind these executive orders that cancel out the Keystone and especially the Dakota Access Pipeline, then I want Democrats in Congress to stand up and actually start pushing for impeachment because this is corruption. His first week in office... And we've already seen a legitimate act of corruption. We don't have to wait for him to do more damage. We can start pushing for impeachment right now. Because a president that pushes for policies that will make him personally profit is a president that's corrupt and that does not deserve to be in office. It's time to impeach him. Democrats, step up. 
So in an interview with MSNBC, Standing Rock Sioux leader David Archambault too spoke out about Donald Trump's recent executive order that revives the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline and also expedites the construction of it. So he talked about why this is really harmful to their tribe and their sovereignty and their drinking water. And I wanted to hear him out. I wanted people to hear what he had to say because... When it comes to the rights of historically oppressed groups, the federal government has made it clear that they don't care what they have to say and they don't want to listen. And Donald Trump did not listen to what the Standing Rock Sioux tribe had to say. But as progressives, we listen. So I wanted to talk about this because I want David Archambault's message to be heard. Here's what he had to say. We were prepared for um, President Trump to take a run at everything that we had accomplished over the past two years. We had uh, ask for an environmental impact statement because we had concerns. And, and the, the troubling thing is that uh, this, this president is um, circumventing federal law. We, don't, we have treaty rights. We have water rights uh, with our winter, winter's doctrine. We have NEPA and uh, the Environmental Protection Agency was put in place for a reason. It was because corporate world was contaminating water. The corporate world was contaminating our air. Corporate world was contaminating our lands. So for this president to come in and say, we're going to streamline everything and forget the Environmental Protection Agency, forget uh, all the federal agencies that are, are making sure that the things that are important to this world uh, are protected. Uh, he's coming in just trying to streamline everything for, for money and greed. and, and there's a, a huge conflict of interest with this. You know, he uh, received a lot of money, $100,000 from uh, the, the executive of Energy Transport, for, um, Energy ETPD, Energy Transport Partners, uh, for his campaign. He also has investments in Phillips 66, where, these, where this crude oil is going to be shipped and get refined. So he's going to benefit. And, and a lot of the lawmakers get contributions from the industry. So the federal laws are in place to to try to facilitate the fossil fuel development in keeping in mind that uh, these laws are being created by people who receive money. So this is not about protecting people or, or complying with law. It's about money and greed. And, and this president, this nation better start bracing itself for what's to come. If, if we're starting to witness in the first four days him using an executive order to circumvent federal law, it, it's, it's not right. And it's um, something that we better get ready for. I was disappointed that it came this soon because we had worked so hard for the last two years and the president didn't even reach out to try to hear our side or understand the concerns. Uh, there are local issues that are taking place and we've been working with the, the state government to try to address these issues. Now this uh, just stifles all the work that we've been trying to get accomplished in the last few months. Um, I know that you've uh, had continuous talks with the congressional delegation looking for some assistance from members of Congress. The delegation all support the pipeline here, um, not to paint this as a battle that is over, but your legal and political remedies at this point, uh, what do you see as your next best chance? You know, we're going to continue to look at the validity of this action and we're going to continue to uh, talk to anyone that would be willing to listen to us in the administration to try to understand why there is resistance. And we're going to continue to to try to get support from Congress who are not fed by the industry and and really open the, the America's eyes on what's happening here. Um, 
this is this is scary times, especially if EPA is uh, given a gag order and not to comment on anything, uh, not to put anything out on on media, not to uh, discuss this issue. Uh, this is this is a, a scary time for America, and this is not about making America great. It's making America bad again, and it's about abusing American Indians again. So what he said there really resonated with me. He expected Trump to do this, but. He didn't expect him to do it within the first week. He knew that Donald Trump would, in fact, revive the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline because of this conflict of interest that not too many people are talking about. I mean, if the, if the media was doing their job, they would educate the people day in and day out that Donald Trump signed this executive order, presumably, we have no idea of knowing, because he stands to profit personally from the Dakota Access Pipeline because he has stock in energy transfer partners and because executives from energy transfer partners contributed thousands of dollars to his campaign. So this is an act of corruption. And I'm glad that David Archambault spoke out about this because this is a part of the story that really needs to be emphasized. What Trump did here is an act of corruption. And the fact that he acted so quickly to revive the construction of this pipeline really speaks to why this conflict of interest needs to be addressed. Democrats should already be pursuing impeachment against him because of this. Now also, uh, David Archibald said, we have treaty rights, we have water rights, and the corporate world is contaminating our water. And Donald Trump is streamlining everything for money and greed. And when he talks about, you know, we have rights, we have treaty rights, Donald Trump didn't hear them out. He makes the statement. He says Donald Trump didn't even think to talk with them. I mean, knowing that this is a divisive issue, Donald Trump, you know, rather than speaking to the leader of Standing Rock or speaking to uh, people at Standing Rock Reservation, uh, he decided to just expedite the construction of this pipeline to push it through before public resistance becomes too overwhelming to where they can't do it. Why wouldn't you try to at least talk to them? So that way you give us the appearance that you're reasonable. Trump's not reasonable. Trump is is an authoritarian. He wants to do things his way because he wants to make a lot of money from the construction of this pipeline. And then towards the end there, David really emphasized something that I was feeling as well. He says, this is scary for America. This action, just within the first week of Trump's presidency, sends us some, the message that Donald Trump is not going to take into consideration anyone else's point of view. He is going to govern in a way that will facilitate very large profits for oil and gas companies. Uh, and at a time when we desperately need to get off of our fossil fuel dependence, at a time when we desperately need to be moving towards renewable energy, Donald Trump isn't thinking about that. He's thinking about the short-term profits. It's really sick. And this whole story is heartbreaking. So look, honestly, David, we're doing everything we can to help you out, buddy. We are on your side. So even if the federal government continues to turn a blind eye to Native American sovereignty and clean drinking water rights that every single American has and uh, the clean drinking water that every American should have access to, we're listening and we're going to do what we can to fight because this can't stand. At this point, Donald Trump has only been president for about a week now, and it's pretty clear that members of the Democratic Party establishment are already starting to cave to him. And this includes... 
Democrats who talked a big game when he was first elected. So for example, this is what Chuck Schumer recently said. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. I am not afraid of the Republicans. And we're going to hold their feet to the fire. Well, apparently, shortly after saying that, Chuck Schumer seems to have had a change of heart. So The Voice explains Schumer's tough talk doesn't square with his voting record. As of now, the Senate has voted on three of Trump's nominees, General James Mattis for the Department of Defense, General John Kelly for the Department of Homeland Security, and Mike Pompeo for the Central Intelligence Agency. Schumer has voted for every single one of them, and each of them has been confirmed. Trump is batting 1,000 at assembling the cabinet he wants. So if you're not afraid of Donald Trump and the Republicans, why would you vote yes on someone like Mike Pompeo, who thinks that we should continue to spy on American citizens and violate the U.S. Constitution? Even Rand Paul, a Republican, voted no on Mike Pompeo, but yet the Democrats and Chuck Schumer gave Donald Trump what he wanted? It, they're hopeless. So this to me is absurd because after eight years of Republicans obstructing everything that President Obama wanted to do, you can't even vote no when you have legitimate reasons to vote no on certain people that Donald Trump wants to include in his administration unbelievable. Now, the reason why they're doing this is because apparently Democrats, you know, they don't want to be as obstructionist as Republicans, and they really want to choose their battles. So according to the Huffington Post, Trump nominated Carson to head the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Carson accepted. Democrats were both befuddled and appalled at what seemed to be a cavalier decision to hand the keys of an agency with 8,300 employees and a $47 billion budget to someone with no apparent qualifications, and for a while, the Carson nomination appeared to be fairly solid turf for them to put up a fight. But as the confirmation proceedings played out, something remarkable happened on Tuesday. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown, two of the most liberal members of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, which has primary jurisdiction over HUD, supported Carson's nomination. Now, I have no idea why Elizabeth Warren, of all people, voted to approve Ben Carson, but Sherrod Brown states that even though he disagrees with Ben Carson on a lot, uh, you know, he talked to Ben Carson in his office, and they found common ground when it came to LGBT rights and protecting LGBT Americans from uh, discrimination. So this is really shocking. And Elizabeth Warren, obviously, someone who I admire. I mean, I've had my criticisms of her in the past, but overall, I admire her. And this is a very strange move. And Elizabeth Warren, of all people, she should be putting up a strong fight right now and show that she's not going to put up with anything that Donald Trump tries to put forward. Because her election prospects in 2018 right now are looking relatively grim. I mean, when you look at early polls, they're showing that she's no sure bet. So she needs to wake up and be the leader that we all want her to be. But she's not. Why not just vote no for the hell of it? Be an asshole. Republicans voted no on everything that Obama wanted to do. They obstructed Obama. They prevented him from appointing a Supreme Court justice and fulfilling his constitutional duty. And the fact that any Democrat is voting yes on anyone that Trump puts forward is appalling to me. I'm not willing to shoot myself in the foot if Donald Trump wants to do something like uh, kill the TPP like he did. Awesome. Don't fight him on that. If Donald Trump wants to fight for the American people, awesome. But if he's going to put forward someone that's going to screw over the American people, maybe you keep voting no until he puts forth someone that's a little bit more moderate. Maybe, just maybe, but Democrats don't know how to fight, and the fact that they're rolling over and dying in the first week of his administration shows that we have no choice but to take over the Democratic Party because they don't know what to do. 
they're completely lost. So last week, I talked about the DNC debate, and I expressed disappointment at the fact that not a single DNC chair candidate would admit that the 2016 primaries were unfair to Bernie Sanders. Now, this time, at a DNC forum, all of the candidates were there, and they had a second chance to actually address the rigging of the primaries, because they were asked what they would do to try to quell those hard feelings that came about due to the rigging of the primaries. And again... Not a single one of them addressed it, and in fact, all of them tried to evade the question, including Keith Ellison, and one of them may have even implied that Bernie Sanders is partially culpable uh, for those hard feelings. So let's watch. Obviously, there are still some hard feelings, uh, uh, probably among some of these folks, about what happened in, in the primary uh, for, for, for uh, president. Uh, the Sanders faction versus the Clinton faction. How do you get beyond that? As the chairman of the party, what do you do? And let me, let me start in the, in the middle this time. I bet no one says that about you too often, Congressman. But uh, let's, let's, let's start with you. You know, uh, as I pointed out a moment ago, and all of us know, Donald Trump is about to be sworn in as President of the United States. We have to come together in unity across all of our different points of view. I supported both candidates, one of the primary and one of the general, and I was proud to support both of them. I'm proud of both of them. I just want to say, and I just want to say that, you know, I went to multiple states for both and I was glad of it. Now, I just want to say that, you know, part of unity is being a chair who will go where people are conflicting and help them sort out the conflict. When I went to, uh, uh, the uh, breakfast uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia for Nevada, I had good friends in there who were on different, different pages. And so they, I tried to mediate sort of a little bit and they said, well, you come to Las Vegas and help us talk about how we get on the same page. And I said, I will. And I did. And we sat in a room for five hours talking about different points of view, hearing people out, responding, and we came out with a document that everyone signed that allowed for unity. And then the Nevadans went out there and won for Hillary. That's great. So let me tell you, we all, we got a fight ahead of us. We got to come together and we will. And if I'm the chair, I not only will preach unity, teach unity, I will go where people are conflicting to bring us together. That diversity is our greatest strength as a party, but it also creates issues and conflicts and challenges. But if we could focus on the things in which we do well and that we all agree upon and use that as the foundation for how we move forward, then this party becomes united. I see a lot of false choices, and I'd like to sound a warning about some of the false choices being presented to us as a party right now. That we have to choose between one wing of the party and another. Or that speaking to white working class voters somehow means abandoning the moral foundation of racial justice that makes our party what it is. Those are false choices. I know when you start, especially when you're introducing yourself, people want to fix you on a spectrum or they want to fit you in a category. Uh, maybe just my personal experience makes me inclined not to go for that. I'm a church-going, red state, millennial, progressive, anti-gun-collecting, uh, intellectual war veteran. I, I, I don't fit in anybody's categories, and most Americans don't think of themselves, and most Democrats don't think of themselves as fitting so tidily into the categories that 
sometimes are laid out for us in stories. We've got to rise above because our values are the right values. And when we lead with those values and back them with a formidable on-the-ground organization, we will win everywhere, every time. We can confront this head-on and not feed them exactly what they want, like they were fed in the 2016 elections exactly what they wanted and delivered Donald Trump upon this earth. But to get to UNITY, we also have to have real conversations, real engagement, a real discussion about the common values, the shared values we have between people who are on one side of this perceived divide and on the other side. Now, when Bernie Sanders wanted to run for president, Secretary of State of New Hampshire in the spring of 2015 said, no, he's not a Democrat. I said, yes, he is. He said, no, he's not. I went to the ballot law commission, got him put on the ballot. And when he filed in the New Hampshire primary, I went with him. Because I wanted to make sure, in front of all of the press that was there, that the Secretary of State of New Hampshire accepted his filing and said, yes, indeed, his name was going to be on the ballot. That's what a neutral party chair does. That's what I'll do as DNC right. chair. The thing I hear the most in my conversations with DNC members is that you want to be part of a team. You don't want to simply be spoken to. You don't want to have a command and control structure. You want to be part of the decision making. We can enhance our everything we do by doing just that. Our organizing. We've got to organize, organize, organize. And we do it better when we do it together. Making sure we tackle the scourge of voter suppression in this country. When we do it together, we do it better. And that is why I have called for the creation of a dedicated unit to do just that. I propose we have, at minimum, a monthly DNC call with the chair, maybe more, but at least once. At minimum, a regional call, and at min a month, and at minimum, a live stream where we talk directly to the Democratic base. But I want to say I'm impressed with much of what my colleagues have said. All right, so let's get to their answers. Keith Ellison just straight up evaded the question and called for unity. Uh, okay, not going to be unity, Keith. Uh, we can't move forward with a wing of the party that's in favor of large contributions going to candidates and them supporting those candidates. I don't want money in politics, and I don't want candidates who are funded by big business. So until that wing of the party acknowledges that, and until... The DNC chair will acknowledge and apologize to us for rigging the primary against our candidate. There cannot be unity, and I don't want unity. And then we had uh, Jamie Harrison, who said we need to focus on things we do well and move forward that way. I don't know what that means, but, you know, terrible answer. And Pete Buttigieg, he said the same thing as he said last time. He said, we're really being given this false choice that, you know, if one of us wins over the other, that one wing of the party wins over the other, and that there's a winner and there's a loser, and this isn't a zero-sum game. That's a false choice. Uh, buddy, you said that last week. We're still not buying it. So I don't like his answer either. And then here is where we come to the interesting part. So when it comes to Jemu Green, she said, quote, we can confront this head on and not feed them exactly what they want, like they were fed in the 2016 election, exactly what they wanted and delivered Donald Trump upon this earth. So let's kind of dissect what she's saying here, because to me, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this. It sounds like she's blaming Bernie Sanders for Donald Trump, because one of the common critiques about Bernie Sanders is that his supporters were too idealistic and that Bernie Sanders was too idealistic and that he was telling us everything that uh, that we wanted to hear and that he was over-promising and would inevitably 
underdeliver, we can confront this head on and not feed them exactly what they want, like they were fed in the 2016 elections exactly what they wanted. It sounds like she's attacking Bernie Sanders and blaming him for Trump. That's what it sounds like. Now, I can't confirm this. This is speculation. Uh, and she was pretty vague. Like, she spoke in vague gen generalities. And Jamu Green, she's been speaking in vague generalities and has been using platitudes. So I don't know where she really stands. But let me just say this, Jamu. If you really are trying to blame Bernie Sanders... You're going to have a fun time if you do become the DNC chair because we will resist you harder than we resisted Debbie Wasserman Schultz because now we have Trump as a president. We're not playing games. So Ray Buckley was really the only one that had kind of an adequate response. He said, you know, that Bernie Sanders was a Democrat. He argued against people that said Bernie Sanders wasn't a true Democrat and that he helped Bernie Sanders gain ballot access and said he would be neutral. That's probably the best answer I've heard. But I want you to admit the last DNC chair was not neutral. So by you saying that you're going to be neutral, that uh, you know that gives me a little bit of hope, Ray. But until you can acknowledge that the last DNC chair was not neutral, then I, I still don't trust you. I don't trust anything you have to say because you're currently the vice DNC chair and you were the vice DNC chair uh, and you served in the DNC throughout Debbie Wasserman Schultz's tenure. So did you speak out then? Did you try to stop her from rigging the primary? Did you push for more debates? So I, I just, I'm sorry, you're saying kind of the right thing here, but I just don't know that I could trust you. Now, Tom Perez, you know, he said, we've got to organize, 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 and we do it better when we do it together. That's all he can do. He can only espouse platitudes. He does not know what to say other than platitudes. Lines that he memorized in front of a mirror. That's all he can do. Platitudes. And it sounds like he literally borrowed a campaign slogan from Hillary Clinton. What was her? campaign slogan stronger together that's what he said when we when we do it we do it better when we do it together how about you stop speaking in vague platitudes and actually address the main problem the main catalyst for division and that is your wing of the party the corporatist hillary wing rigging it against the grassroots candidate and then what's what's funny to me is that tom perez actually talked about tackling voter suppression in this country and yes i i absolutely want to tackle voter suppression but how do you Suppose you're going to actually be an effective leader against voter suppression uh, when the Republicans do it if you won't even mention voter suppression in your own party. I mean, what do you call closed primaries where you literally disenfranchise uh, independents from voting? That's a form of voter suppression, but you were silent on that because closed primaries helped Hillary Clinton. So it seems like you actually like voter suppression when Democrats do it. You just don't like voter suppression when Republicans do it. So you're a hypocrite, Tom Perez. So don't talk to me about voter suppression until you actually move to address the voter suppression that's going on in your own party. Now, Keith ended this all by saying that he's impressed by what much of his colleagues said. Well, look... <laughs> I'm glad that you're impressed, Keith, because I certainly wasn't impressed at all. And in fact, I'm even more disappointed now than I was last week. You guys have had now two opportunities to address and potentially apologize for the rigging of the last DNC chair. And all you did was evade the question and call for unity and say that, you know, this is this is a false choice between the Bernie wing and the Hillary wing. We're not divided. We need to be unity and we do it better when we do it together. That means nothing to me. As someone who was defrauded, who donated to a candidate who was running in an inherently unfair primary, 
That's not sufficient. That's not what I wanted to hear. Here's how you answer the question. Here's what you do if you really want to be the DNC chair and you want to heal the wounds that's within the party right now. You say, look, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you were wronged and we owe you right now. So I don't expect you to trust me. I expect to prove to you that I'm going to be a neutral chair, a chair who's going to fight for you and not the donors to the Democratic Party because you guys are the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And we learned that if we abandon voters... We will not get the support that we need to defeat corrupt, unpopular Republicans. So yes, I'm sorry that the primary was rigged, and I acknowledge that there's this division, and I don't expect to heal the divide that's there right now. But here's what we can do, and here's what I can promise as the next DNC chair. Going forward, we're going to do things differently. We're going to acknowledge what we did wrong, and we're going to build upon that, and we're going to earn your trust back. We're going to earn the trust of every Bernie Sanders supporter that we screwed over, of every independent that we screwed over, and we're going to immediately take steps to eliminate closed primaries. We're going to make sure that no matter who runs in 2020, we have a minimum of 30 debates. Yes, 30 debates. Because that's what we do. We get the message out about Democrats. And yes, we will do the get out the vote campaign, regardless if it hurts or helps certain candidates. So that's what they should have said. If I were the DNC chair candidate, that's what I would have said. But these people don't know what they're doing. And regardless of who wins, you know, we're screwed either way. And the only thing that we can do is take over the party at this point with justice Democrats. Now, am I still rooting for Keith Ellison? Yes, because if Keith Ellison doesn't win, then we get a lobbyist like Tom Perez. And I'd rather have someone who's a fallen line Democrat like Keith Ellison over a lobbyist like Tom Perez. But I'm still really disappointed in Keith Ellison. Any hope and optimism that I had in the prospect of Keith becoming the DNC chair, that went out the window. If he becomes the DNC chair... We still fight. So these candidates, they don't get it. DNC chair candidate Tom Perez was confronted by Zaid Jelani of The Intercept, who does fantastic work, by the way, and he was asked about his controversial stance on Israel. And like the coward that he is, Tom Perez decided to just walk away mid-interview. Take a look. I saw your question about the uh, the BDS movement. It's really interesting. That's a debate a lot of Democrats are having. Oh, is that right? A lot of people across the country are having. Uh, it's interesting. People are quick to condemn the BDS movement, but there's also been uh, sort of really strong actions against human rights by Israel. For example, 1,600 oh. Palestinians lost their homes no, last absolutely. year to home militias. I, I understand would you, would that you condemn, Do you condemn the home demolitions just like yeah. you would condemn BDS? Is that type of stuff? Secretary, would you condemn the home demolitions by Benjamin Netanyahu? Uh, Secretary, do you do you also condemn the expansion of settlements? Secretary Perez. Secretary Perez, do, do you feel like you can represent Arab Americans? So that right there is everything you need to know about how Tom Perez would govern as DNC chair. If you don't realize what he did there, he walked away as soon as Zayi brought up human rights. He just walked away and started to ignore him. And uh, he wouldn't even condemn the demolition of Palestinian homes or the expansion of settlements. Just walked away and ignored Zaid. Okay, let me ask you this. If you if you can't condemn human rights violations, Tom Perez, then what do you even stand for? If you can't speak out against illegal settlements that have been condemned by the international community and the UN, then what do you even stand for? The Democratic Party is supposed to be about lowering the playing field for everyone. They're supposed to be about speaking out for the oppressed and the marginalized. And if you can't speak out for Palestinians who are being oppressed, whose territorial sovereignty is being violated, who 
is on the right side of the international law, then what do you even stand for? Why are you running to be the DNC chair? All right, we already know why Tom Perez is running. Uh, it's because the establishment basically uh, pushed him into this position because they don't want someone like Keith Ellison to take over. Well, Keith Ellison is basically a Democratic Party yes man as well, uh, but they just want to really make sure that the party continues with this corporatist path that they've been going on uh, since basically the 70s, but mostly since Bill Clinton became president. Now, if you've seen any interviews with Tom Perez, he has been confronted and he acts weird. He tries to, uh, you know, evade the question. He did this before when he was confronted about the TPP. So he he's just an awkward, weird person. So, I mean, if you're DNC chair, I'm not, this isn't just an ad hominem attack, but if you're the DNC chair and we have a question for you and we're trying to press you on something, are you just going to walk away from us? Are you just going to ignore the questions that we have if we need to put pressure on you? I mean, look, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, regardless if you love her or hate her, she never walked away from an interview as far as I know. She always answered questions even as she gave platitudes or non-answers. She at least stayed and answered the question. You are looking to be worse than Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Tom. So how do you expect to lead a party if you can't even answer a simple question, if you can't even condemn human rights abuses? The answer is, you can't lead a party and you're not fit to be the DNC chair, so you need to withdraw because nobody wants you here. The Young Turks and Kyle Kulinski of Secular Talk have teamed up with veterans of Bernie Sanders' campaign to launch a new initiative to take over the Democratic Party once and for all. So it's called Justice Democrats, and this is something that I am overwhelmingly excited about. Now, the first question, before we even get to what Justice Democrats are, uh, is why even bother with the Democratic Party? Because I talk about how the Democratic Party is a lost cause and how they're rotten to the core, so why not just start a new party? Why not take all of the resources that Justice Democrats can raise and funnel this towards creating a brand new party that we're in control of. Well, I'll let Kyle Kulinski explain why that might not be the best strategy. And all of the institutional biases against third parties are so immensely strong that we're effectively handicapping ourselves if we go into it trying to do a third party. It's like taking a sledgehammer, swinging it at your kneecap, and then saying... Okay, now it's time to go run that marathon you spoke about. Well, if I'm going to run the marathon, I should be in tip-top shape now, shouldn't I? I should give myself the best possible chance, not the worst chance. So, for example, the Green Party, who I absolutely love, um, they've had some successes here and there, but by and large, they are not uh, what's viewed as a viable third party. And again, it's not their fault. It's the fault of the institutional biases against them and against third parties in general. But if you're a member of the Green Party, and you're a member of the, the Democratic Socialists. Let me tell you right now, you are our allies. I view you as our allies. So, I don't want people to take it the wrong way. Uh, I need them to understand exactly where we're coming from. And if you read the platform of the Justice Democrats, we specifically refer to reforms that we favor that would help third parties and remove some of those institutional biases. But based on our calculations our highest chance of winning and actually uh, getting the policies we want implemented is to take over the Democratic Party. So in my opinion, I think Kyle's logic here is absolutely sound. And I've kind of made similar arguments here. I've stated that, yes, unfortunately, we have to begrudgingly work within the Democratic Party, but simultaneously try to build a viable third party alternative. Because 
Unfortunately, with our two-party system, with our single-member district plurality, winner-take-all system, it's really difficult for a third party to gain prominence in the United States currently. So I agree that it's easier to just try to take over the Democratic Party rather than trying to create a viable alternative. Now, I think that we should still try to build up the Green Party at the same time, but this is a great initiative and I'm really excited about it. So the goal of Justice Democrats is to take over the Democratic Party by primarying corporatist Democrats. And so Justice Democrats, they're going to vet candidates that actually agree with the progressive platform. And they're all going to be signing a pledge and they're vowing to not take corporate money. It's going to be funded specifically or exclusively by grassroots efforts. So their platform includes a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics, uh, raising the minimum wage, ensuring healthcare and education are rights for everyone, ending unnecessary wars, ending the war on drugs, creating a renewable energy revolution. And most importantly, we know that they're actually going to push for these policies because they're signing a pledge. Justice Democrats will not be taking money from billionaires and large corporations. And almost all of these policies have majority support in public opinion polls. So I think that this is a great way to ensure that we get people that are like Bernie Sanders, that agree with the policy positions that Bernie Sanders agrees with. Uh, and I love it. So how it works is you nominate someone, and if you want to change the country, you can run yourself. They'll vet you, and you very well could be a Justice Democrat. So here's what you can do. You can head on over to justicedemocrats.com and sign up if you can. Donate to support the gods. If you can give $27, just like you did for Bernie Sanders' campaign, that will really help make this a more effective organization. So... Justice Democrats is an organization that actually gives me hope for the first time in a long time, and I really believe in this. I do. I, I'm not just saying that. I, I really believe in this. Now, it's still going to be tough, you know, just because we have the Justice Democrats and we can throw the weight of progressives behind them and give them a lot of money to run so that way they don't have to uh, take financial contributions from, you know, large corporations and billionaires. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us. The Democratic Party establishment is still going to pull out the dirty tricks that they used uh, against Bernie Sanders. They're going to do the same thing to try to discredit and defeat Justice Democrats. But that doesn't mean we just roll over and die because it's going to be difficult. That doesn't mean we don't try. We're still going to fight to get Justice Democrats elected. And of course, when we do get Justice Democrats elected, the Democratic Party will inevitably try to co-opt them like the Republican Party tried to co-opt the Tea Party and was, and was successful. But the difference between Justice Democrats and the Tea Party, besides policy, of course, is that Justice Democrats are not funded by large corporations. The Tea Party is an astroturf, that is, a pseudo-grassroots movement that was funded by billionaires like the Koch brothers. Their network funded a lot of the Tea Party protests. The Koch network funded a lot of the campaigns of Tea Partiers. So, we're different than the Tea Party in that when we get into office, Justice Democrats aren't going to sell out. And if they do sell out, then we primary them and get them out of office too. So, I want to fight so that way we have a Democratic Congress that not only gives Democrats the majority, but a majority of justice Democrats. In addition to doing this, we also still push for certain policies, we organize grassroots protests, we still resist Donald Trump, and we still try to reform the Democratic Party simultaneously. We have to have multiple strategies at once. We can't just rely on one thing. So I think that this is one of many strategies that we have to employ to actually impact the country and get real progressive change. Uh, so, look, it's difficult to reform the party because the party's rotten to the core. Everything about the party gives me no hope. 
But with justice Democrats, you know, if we can't reform the party, we're just going to take it over. We're going to take control of the party so that way it's control of the people, not the large corporations, not the donors, not the funders of the Democratic Party. So please join this revolution, justicedemocrats.com. And if you can, give anything, sign up, nominate someone. And I look, I really want you to consider this, and I, and I mean this. If you are tired of the way that the country's going, uh, if you don't like the way it's being run, if you think that you could do a better job, sign up, run for Congress. We want progressives to get involved. I don't want there to just be Bernie Sanders in Congress trying to fight Trump by himself and trying to drag along Democrats. I want justice Democrats like you in Congress fighting alongside Bernie Sanders. Don't doubt yourself. If you think you can do it, then you can. If you have any shred of just 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 contemplation in your body that makes you think maybe I would be a good justice democrat I want you to sign up for this you owe it to us you owe it to the country you owe it to yourself to be a true progressive and run so look if you're 25 you could run for congress please be a justice democrat run for congress justicedemocrats.com this is really really encouraging at this point, nobody would deny the fact that the Democratic Party is completely lost and they're undergoing an identity crisis and they have to make some real connections to voters if they ever want to be electorally viable again. So knowing that they're out of touch and knowing that they actually have to connect with people, this is what they're doing. It's pretty embarrassing. They're literally taking lessons on how to talk to real people. Maybe this is just me, but maybe if you don't know how to talk to the constituents that elected you into office, maybe you shouldn't be in Congress in the first place, but that's just me. But that's just one absurd aspect of this story. Who actually is going to be giving them the lesson on how to talk to real people is probably the real, uh, <laughs> the real story at this point, because it's sad. So the individuals who will be training Democrats on how to talk to real Americans are... David Brock, and Neera Tandon. I'm not kidding. This is a real story. This is not satirical. They are taking lessons from super PAC leaders, like David Brock. So according to Politico, Senate Democrats geared up for a battle with President Trump by preparing to talk to people who voted for him and by hearing from one of his arch nemeses. Gathering in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, Democrats were scheduled to hear Thursday from liberal political operative David Brock, Center for American Progress CEO Neera Tandon, and Priorities USA CEO Guy Cecil in a session called Hold Trump Accountable. Earlier in the day, Senator Joe Manchin moderated a discussion with Trump voters according to a draft schedule obtained by Politico. Manchin and nine other Senate Democrats are up for re-election next year in states that Trump won. Much of the event appears geared at figuring out how to turn people who supported Trump into Democratic voters in 2018. Former Kentucky Governor Steve Bashir, along with Senators Heidi Heitkamp and Michael Bennett, held a session on, quote, speaking to those who feel invisible in rural America, according to the schedule. Other sessions were along similar lines, listening to those who feel unheard and rising America, they feel unheard too. On Thursday, Senator Chris Van Hollen will discuss political tactics for the midterm election and Democrats will strategize on how to define themselves and Trump. 
Senators Elizabeth Warren, Tim Kaine, and Joe Donnelly will talk about triangulating Trump, emphasizing that they can go around Republicans by trying to work with Trump on infrastructure, outsourcing, and trade. Finally, Senator Dianne Feinstein will prep Democrats on how to engage against Republicans over Trump's Supreme Court pick, which is expected to come next week. Democrats did not allow reporters to attend. Uh, yeah, and I wouldn't either because this is embarrassing. I wouldn't want the media to see that we don't know how to talk to real people. So, you know, um, I'm glad that they're trying. <laughs> this is just, this is an embarrassing article. They should be ashamed that they have to be taught how to talk to people. And if they really want to learn how to talk to people, uh, you have to get your feet wet. Just jump in. Don't have David Brock try to school you on how to talk to people because David Brock doesn't know a thing about talking to real Americans. David Brock is in bed with the elites. David Brock is in bed with billionaires. So he doesn't know anything about this. And I love how him and Neera Tandon, they're going to be hosting the whole Trump accountable meeting. Uh, they were operatives for Hillary Clinton. They have been longtime Democratic Party strategists. And guess what happened? They lost to Trump. So if they were defeated by Donald Trump, how can they be expected to teach you guys how to hold Trump accountable? They can't. So this whole thing is just absurd. The Democratic Party is lost, and if they don't sever this relationship that they have with David Brock, he's going to drag them down with him. David Brock is the head of multiple super PACs. David Brock perpetuates the system of legalized bribery in the United States, and the fact that the Democratic Party are not just in bed with him, but they're actually taking lessons from him, shows that they have no idea what they're doing, and proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, that the Democratic Party is in fact a lost cause. This is absolutely embarrassing. And this is kind of infuriating to me. Like, I laugh about it, and I make fun of them for this, which I should, and we all should. But I mean, at the end of the day, how out of touch are you? If you're this out of touch to where you have to be taught how to talk to people, you should just step down. Let's hold a new election. You should leave. Don't stay in Congress if you don't know how to talk to the people you're supposed to be representing. Leave. You shouldn't have to be taught how to talk to people if you never stopped talking to them to begin with once you were elected, then you wouldn't have to go through this. You wouldn't feel odd uh, and awkward when you talk to them. These are just normal, everyday citizens, and the fact that you're not already talking to them shows that Congress is way out of touch. It proves that the Democratic Party is way out of touch. This is sad. I wanted to share a quick video with you guys that will hopefully make you optimistic, albeit cautiously. And I'll tell you what I mean by that when we come back. Okay, thank you all very much, West Virginia! I don't have to tell anybody here that our country today faces enormous problems and that we have a delusional president who is who is way out of touch with the needs of the people of West Virginia and working people all over this country. Yeah. Yeah. These people who claim to speak for workers are now in the process of throwing 20 million Americans off of health insurance, <laughs> making massive cuts to Medicaid, privatizing Medicare, and they want to privatize Social Security. Ooh. Now, the way we are going to beat them is through a mass grassroots effort. Yeah. And we saw what that grassroots effort is about on Saturday with the Women's March all over America. 
So we need your help here in West Virginia, a struggling state, a working class state. We have got to stand up and fight back, demand health care for all. Break up the logbanks. So let's go forward together. Now let me introduce you to one of the great senators, Elizabeth Warren. So at this point, nobody can deny the fact that Bernie Sanders is the de facto leader of the Democratic Party and he is leading the resistance against Donald Trump. And what you saw there, it should make you feel encouraged because all of the Senate was behind Bernie Sanders. All of them. You had establishment Democrats and corporatist Democrats like Tim Kaine. You saw uh, Patty Murray behind him. You saw Chuck Schumer behind him and allowing him to take the lead and allowing him to get in front and lead the resistance against Donald Trump and speak out against Donald Trump. And this is good because on one hand, it shows us that they're getting behind Bernie Sanders because they're lost. And Bernie Sanders is the only one with his head on straight who has the courage to constantly speak out against Donald Trump. But at the same time, I say that we should be cautiously optimistic by this because even though Democrats are lining up behind Bernie Sanders right now, I'm afraid that they're exploiting him. And what I mean by that is that they're capitalizing on his newfound popularity um, and the platform that he has and that he cultivated during his campaign. And they're using this, and later on, they're going to betray Bernie Sanders. So they're trying to give us the veneer of change. They're trying to show us that there is change. Meanwhile, there's continuity on the inside of the Democratic Party. So they'll allow Bernie Sanders to be the poster boy for the Democratic Party. But are they actually willing to embrace the reforms that Bernie Sanders is pushing for? Are any of them going to stand up and declare that healthcare is a right in this country? Or that education is a right in this country? I don't know. So at first, I was really excited to see that all these Democratic senators were getting behind Bernie Sanders because they do need to get behind him. They need to step aside and allow the Bernie wing of the party to clean up the mess that they made. However, at the same time, are they just using Bernie Sanders? And I think the answer to that is yes. I like that they're elevating the platform of Bernie Sanders, but I don't just want Democrats to trot out Bernie Sanders because it helps make them more popular. I want them to actually embrace the reforms that Bernie Sanders is talking about. If you see that Bernie Sanders is popular and you know why he's popular, connect the dots. Realize that maybe I can be popular if I do what Bernie Sanders does. If I not just listen to him, but I actually do what he does. If I stop and think, who should I represent, the people or corporations? If I reject corporate donations, if I stop allowing lobbyists to control my political positions, maybe... Just think like that, and you'll be popular too. So I'm afraid that they're willing to bring Bernie out when it's convenient, but then ignore his real message. And, you know, they're they're trotting out people that are really popular, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, even though Elizabeth Warren's record, you know, a lot of progressives are very disappointed in her. So, you know, I think that that's kind of a misleading strategy there. 
But I want them to actually listen to Bernie Sanders and, and do what he does. Advocate for healthcare as a right. Advocate for a single-payer system. Reject money from corporate donors and billionaires. But they don't want to do that. They want to use Bernie Sanders when it's convenient. And look, I might be reading too much into this. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, and it is still, again, it's encouraging that Bernie Sanders is at the forefront of the resistance against Donald Trump. But at the same time, I want the party to embrace what Bernie Sanders is saying, and they're not doing that. So this is why I think that causes like justice Democrats, it's something that's really important because we've got to take over the party because I can't trust them. The fact that I have any shred of doubt tells me that it's time that we stop just trying to reform the Democratic Party. I mean, well, I shouldn't say stop because we still need to do that, but we have to take over the Democratic Party. So the whole party is like Bernie Sanders, and they're not just paying lip service to the ideas that Bernie Sanders has. So the dominant narrative in the mainstream media when it comes to the Syrian crisis is that Bashar al-Assad is the main problem and that we need to prioritize overthrowing him. And if that means we need to arm moderate rebels to try to defeat Bashar al-Assad, then that's what we need to do. However, the problem is that what we're being told by the mainstream media, it doesn't match up with reality. And Tulsi Gabbard actually went to Syria and she talked with Syrians and she gave the mainstream media a reality check that they really needed to hear. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a, a friend of yours, also a military veteran, a Republican, he said on Twitter when he heard about your, your, quote, your visit, quote, fact-finding mission, fact, 50,000 plus dead children in Syria. Tulsi Gabbard, I hope you didn't meet with their butcher, Assad. Now, Assad has used chemical weapons on his own people. You said it's going to be up to the Syrian people, but there really aren't free and fair elections in Syria. I'll tell you what I heard from the Syrian people that I met with, Jake, walking down the streets in Aleppo, in Damascus, hearing from them. They expressed uh, happiness and joy at seeing an American walking through their streets. Uh, but they expressed a question. They said, why is it that the United States, its allies in other countries, are providing support, are providing arms to terrorist groups like al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, Arar al-Sham, uh, ISIS, who are on the ground there raping, kidnapping, torturing, and killing the Syrian people, children, men, women, people of all ages. They asked me, why is the United States and its allies supporting these terrorist groups who are destroying Syria when it was al-Qaeda who attacked the United States on 9-11, not Syria? I didn't have an answer for them. Obviously, the United States government denies providing any sort of uh, help to the to the terrorist groups that you're talking about. They say they provide uh, help for the, for the rebel groups. Tell us more about... The reality about is, Jake, yeah. the reality is, and I'm glad you brought up that point, because this is an often talked about thing by people like Adam Kinzinger and others saying, well, we've got to support the moderate rebels. Uh, every place that I went, every person that I spoke to, I asked this question to them. And without hesitation, they said there are no moderate rebels. Who are these moderate rebels that, that people keep speaking of? Regardless of the name of these groups, the strongest fighting force on the ground in Syria is al-Nusra or al-Qaeda and ISIS. That is a fact. There's a number of different other groups. All of them essentially are fighting alongside, with, or under the command of the strongest group on the ground that's trying to overthrow Assad. The Syrian people recognize and they know that if President Assad is overthrown, then Al-Qaeda or a group like Al-Qaeda that has been killing Christians, killing uh, uh, people simply because of their religion or because they won't support their terror activities, 
they will take charge of all of Syria. This is the reality that the people of Syria are facing on the ground and why they are pleading with us here in the United States to stop supporting these terrorist groups. Let the Syrian people themselves determine their future, not the United States, not some foreign country. So Jake Tapper there implied that it's unethical for her to speak with Bashar al-Assad, seeing that he used chemical weapons against his own civilians. And look, I don't think you're going to find many people that will defend Bashar al-Assad. We all know he's an authoritarian dictator, but she kind of gave him a reality check there when she said, look, if you want to talk about ethics, let's talk about how the United States is arming so-called moderate rebels. The arms that were given to the moderate rebels, uh, they're going to al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, and ISIS. So you're giving guns to groups that are terrorizing normal Syrian civilians. That is unethical. Now, Jake Tapper said, well, obviously, you know, the United States government, they deny providing any sort of help to terrorist groups that you're talking about. And they say that they only provide help to moderate rebel groups. But Tulsi Gabbard rightfully dropped a truth bomb on him. She said, there are no moderate rebel groups. That's what Syrians are telling her. Syrians are there. Tulsi Gabbard went to Syria, so she actually knows what's going on, and I'm pretty sure that Syrians know what's going on in Syria more than the mainstream media and more than what the government wants us to believe. You're arming terrorists. The American government and our allies, they're arming terrorists who are raping Syrian civilians, who are killing Syrian civilians, and it's not okay. So say what you will about Bashar al-Assad, but if you overthrow him then you allow for the takeover of Syria by ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And why is it that the American government should be able to decide the fate of Syrian civilians? Don't they get a say in whether or not they want to be ruled by Assad or ISIS? I mean, regardless, it's lose-lose for Syrian civilians. But don't you think that we should stay out of this? I mean, people will say, look, well, we've got to provide humanitarian support. You don't understand. The American government, I, in theory, I, I like the idea of sending humanitarian aid to foreign countries, but the American government, they go to foreign countries and they make matters worse. They make matters worse, they don't help. So if you dare to go against the dominant narrative that Bashar al-Assad should not be overthrown and that it's not the U.S.'s business to topple foreign governments, well then you're demonized. You are a sympathizer to uh, a human rights abuser. And Tulsi Gabbard was demonized and vilified. So look, regardless of what you think about Bashar al-Assad, if you get rid of him, then you get ISIS. ISIS should not be in control of Syria. And the U.S. military is making ISIS more powerful. So if you make it the only goal to defeat Assad and you use whatever means are necessary to defeat Bashar al-Assad, then you're not realizing that you may be doing more harm to Syrian civilians and their interests are what we should put above everything else, not overthrowing Assad for political reasons. So look, I'm glad that Tulsi Gabbard went on this fact-finding mission and, and I'm actually, uh, I'm appreciative of the fact that she's educating the media. The media should be doing this, but thankfully we have someone like Tulsi Gabbard who's actually educating the American public on this issue.
Well, that's all I got for you guys. If you're a newcomer to the program, I want to thank you for tuning in uh, and welcome you to the channel. I would encourage you to check out all of our other videos. We have hundreds of videos on the channel, so certainly there's going to be something that will satisfy your tastes. Uh, and also, I want to send a thank you to the members of the Independent Progressive Media Revolution, the Patreon patrons, uh, anyone who's a member on HumanistReport.com, people who donate via PayPal, people who like and share the videos and constantly spread the word about the podcast. You allow us to not just survive, but also thrive and expand so thank you all so much. Uh, so this has been hopefully a good episode. I'm, I, I'm hoping you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I will see you next week.